Welcome to Insurance Uncut, the podcast where we explore the big issues impacting the general insurance market. I'm Charles Cronier. And I'm Jessica Clark. And Insurance Uncut is brought to you by LCP. We'd love to hear from you, so please get in touch with your questions or feedback via LinkedIn or our website. Let's kick off with this week's episode. Really pleased today to be welcoming the hosts of our sister podcast, Investment Uncut. Dan Mikulskis and Mary Spencer to the show today to talk about all thing investments. We're thinking about investments from the point of view of general insurers and a common conversation that I have with general insurers on investments goes along the lines of, well, as a general insurer, we really try to keep our investments very simple. Our liabilities are mostly quite short duration. We're not looking to do anything clever on investment. We're really just looking to not create additional risk, do something sensible, earn modest but fair returns, and really just keep things really well controlled. The implication of which is often, well, we don't think we should spend much time on investment strategy, but I'm sure that there is a lot more to it than that. (laughs) And of course, in the current environment with all the crazy things going on worldwide, I think whether you think you've got a low risk investment strategy or not, it's a time to have a careful think about whether you're doing the right things. So really looking forward to being enlightened on various fronts. So welcome, Mary and Dad. Hello. Hello. It's great to be with you, actually. Thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Hi. Fantastic. So we've got a range of hot topics to cover today and then just kind of a more broader sense in terms of investing for insurers. So shall we start with inflation? So I guess, Mary, the thing I've been quite struck with over the last few months is and I remember having conversations with Charles actually on some of the work we were doing back in January. Inflation looks like it might hit 5%. Oh no, inflation might hit 7%. And now here we are right in the middle of 9%. And I remember you saying, Shai, you said when we were having conversations, I just don't think, I think it's going to be higher. I think it's going to be higher. How wrong have the forecasts been? And why is that? As you've just illustrated, Jess, the forecasts have been pretty wrong, I would say. And I think there's sort of different drivers to why forecasts are what they are and therefore why they might be wrong. So absolutely right. At the start of the year, we were saying, wow, look how high inflation's got and it might get another couple of percent higher and then another couple and another couple. And it's only really quite recently that the Bank of England has said, no, actually, hands up, it's going to be higher and it might last a bit longer than we were previously saying. If you think about the job of the Bank of England, part of their job is to control inflation at the level that they target. So, of course, when inflation is slightly above that target level, the governor of the Bank of England will be saying, no, 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 because it's going to come down again. We're going to control it in these ways. And if enough people in the market expect it to come down, it is going to come down. I think so. It's not that surprising that consistently Bank of England forecasts have said, no, it is going to be much more controlled and it will come down much quicker. And only very recently is it sort of saying, actually, no, this could be here to stay for a bit longer. I think if you roll back, I mean, almost a year, really, there was a lot of talk about whether inflation was transient or not. And that was the kind of word of the day. I think even by the end of last year, it was pretty clear that there were lots of drivers that were not at all transient in nature. There were lots of structural drivers. That's obviously before the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, which I think exacerbated these issues, but didn't cause the issues in the first place in many cases. So lots of reasons why the market might have been wrong to start with, lots of reasons why it might have stayed wrong. And to be frank, lots of reasons why it might still be wrong. And we've seen very high levels of inflation, but doesn't necessarily mean that we're right now in terms of the pathway that is expected. A conversation I'm having quite frequently with clients now is 
but how high could it go? Given that the Bank of England, but also the investment markets, the swaps markets have continually under-egged how high inflation was going to go. How much worse could it be? One of the things on my mind, and I thought I would bounce this off you, is the price of oil has gone up by much higher than any inflation rate than we see being discussed. And of course, the price of oil, price of fuels feeds through into almost every product and every service. So given how high the increase in the oil price has been, I guess the question that I'm reaching for there is what percentage of that is going to feed through into overall prices? The way I think about the forecasting in inflation, I mean, there's that great new chart. I've heard people calling the hairdryer chart. I don't know if you've seen it. It's where it's like you've got the line of inflation going up and then you've got the forecast at each point in time. At any point in time, the forecasters forecast it was at the peak and going to come down. And every single time, it's just sort of kept going up. And I think that speaks to like Mary was saying, like just the issue, the psychological biases around forecasting when something is at much higher levels than we've ever seen it is just really hard, honestly. And I don't think the market has forecast it well. I don't think analysts have forecast it well. I don't think I can forecast it that well, to be honest. I think trying to get into a deep conversation about, believe me, I enjoy debating this stuff, but am I right? Do I think I have conviction in my view on it? Not really. And would I try and build an investment thesis that doesn't rely on a forecast of inflation? That is kind of more where I would get to. I mean, I think for a few years, you've had people thinking about a period of higher than average inflation. We've had 20 years of extremely low inflation. So having a period of time where inflation is, say, 4 or 5% wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. But clearly, that's a world away from where we are today with this sort of extremely acute high inflation. But it's a cliche, but we really are in uncharted territory as far as most people operating in the markets know. So it's just still that shock, isn't there, around where we are and just a real lack of much to go on in terms of what to forecast for the future. And I think, Shell, to your point just earlier, as an insurer, you might want to hold a very simple and low-risk investment portfolio. Well, what is low risk in an environment where inflation is doing crazy things like this? And actually, it's that unexpected move in inflation that catches you off guard more than long-term trend going up or down. Bonds are relatively resilient to that sort of thing. Short-term, really high or low shocks, that's when suddenly what you thought your investments were going to do isn't necessarily quite what they're going to do. The protection you thought they were offering you isn't quite what you're getting from them. That's very interesting. So what we've seen over the last nine months or so is a series of shocks where again and again, actual inflation is outstripping what the market thought it would be a few months ago. And so that's the sort of thing that would be hitting asset values. And particularly short term, because I think when you look at long term inflation expectations, actually, they haven't moved that far. But you mentioned, particularly for general insurers, it's that shorter term liability that you're holding. Therefore, what you're holding against those liabilities is most likely shorter term and they will have been more so impacted. I think it is a real challenge for lower risk portfolios, actually, maybe more so than higher risk portfolios. For sort of higher risk growthy portfolios, you kind of assume that stock markets are going to outperform inflation over the long term. Inflation is going to average out. Everything's broadly fine. There's a long track record of stocks giving good real returns. But it's the bond piece that I think investors have been focusing on just because been such negative real returns at that point, it's really hard to outperform inflation at low risk. You probably can't. You've probably got to take quite a decent amount of risk to outperform inflation after fees in investing. And that is a sort of almost a structural issue, which I don't think the industry is massively well set up for because there's sort of so much anchoring to the regime we've been in where everything's low and stable that how can we get our heads around investing for real returns ahead of inflation, whether or not you need to take more risk to do that. I think it is really problematic. I feel like we could probably carry on the conversation on inflation 
for the rest of the podcast. But I know we had at least two more topics we wanted to cover. Does anyone else want to make any other points on inflation? I was just going to pick up the point Mary made as well. I do think that sometimes there's a few sort of myths that perpetuate around talking about inflation and investing. I think it is really important, but it often is the expected versus unexpected dynamic that is kind of the really key one. And you do get, I think, some slightly lazy assumptions sometimes around saying, well, equities are a hedge for inflation sort of thing, which I don't think is true in the strict sense. Stocks do give you good real returns, most environments, including high inflation ones, but that's not the same as them sort of being a hedge. So yeah, I think at this point around expected inflation versus unexpected is a really key one. And that's sort of often missed. And we've just had 20 years of it being low and stable. So everyone's just pasted that number to the right in their spreadsheets and not really worried about it. And it's quite a profound change that we're in. And I know that one issue that insurers are struggling with is as part of setting their statutory capital requirements, they would have modeling, which would include economic modeling. And those economic models tend to be parametrized using past data. And of course, like you said, the last 20 plus years of past data are not terribly representative. So there's some real technical challenges around getting the models to behave anything like the real world is currently behaving. And the fact that most likely the people operating the model have either only a tiny bit experienced high inflation or not at all in their working lifetimes. So it's uncharted territory for many people, I think, at the moment. Now, one thing we haven't talked about explicitly yet in this conversation is interest rates. And of course, we've recently had a small interest rate hike in the UK. I read an article that suggested that in order for the interest rate hike to be effective in tackling inflation, it would have needed to have been four times the size. And that troubled me, one, because that's a troubling thought, but also because I'm not personally convinced that any interest rate hike right now could arrest inflation because it wouldn't necessarily operate on the key drivers of inflation that we're currently experiencing. What are your thoughts on that? And where do you think interest rates could go? I think the market's expecting interest rates to continue to go up if you look at what market well we've just talked about how market expectations are often not right but and there's a similar hairdryer chart on interest rates yeah, so I, yeah. I shouldn't talk too strongly about market expectations but there is expectation of further hikes partly Charles, as you say because to control inflation you would think you would need a bigger hike i mean i think it is one of not many tools that is available to try and control inflation so yes it doesn't perfectly match up to some of the drivers of high inflation But if it does change consumer behavior because interest rates have gone up, then it can start to dampen inflation, not in an unpainful way, I would say. So if you think interest rates go up, for example, mortgage rates go up, people are less able to pay their mortgage. Just to take one example, people are less able to pay their mortgage payments. There are defaults. House prices start to fall. None of that is particularly happy inflation control outcome, I would say. But it does eventually work its way back through the system and you do end up with a lower level of inflation. So I think I've read a number of articles that say a similar thing in terms of the moves are very small in the context of the levels of inflation that we're seeing. But much bigger moves would be much more disruptive, much quicker. And so it is a very difficult balancing act. Would you accept that some of that sort of textbook logic that we all learned that raising interest rates is an effective way to curb inflation, that equation doesn't necessarily work or at least has been challenged? I think a lot of economic orthodoxy from the last few decades is being challenged right now, for sure. And I think you can look back at the last 20 years and say that there were other things happening which sort of fooled us into thinking that interest rates were more effective than maybe they actually are. But yeah, one point I would just make on the current rates, we've been at an emergency rate level, haven't we? And 
emergency accommodative level for a long time. So surely at least makes sense to get off that and try and figure roughly where is neutral, get to some kind of neutral rate should be at the very least what we expect to be happening, I think. But you can get incredibly anchored to those emergency low levels and sort of forget that that was supposed to be a post-crisis ultra accommodative setting. I think in some ways we should be expecting that. But it is funny what point Mary was making. You ask us about interest rates, the first thing we do is start reaching for market expectations and then the next breath kind of poking fun at how rubbish they've been. I mean, there was a time not long ago where they were expecting interest rates to be something like half a percent for the next 50 years or something ridiculous like that was what markets were pricing. But we don't have any other place to reach for when you start asking us about interest rates. So market expectations it is. Yeah, I don't know. A lot of things have been thrown up in the air, hasn't it? What else can you say? I want to pick up on something you briefly mentioned, Mary, and that was obviously Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We've spoken about it briefly on the podcast before, and I know you guys have as well. And obviously, the conflict is still very much going on, and there are still things happening. I, th- I think it was this morning that it was announced that, or over the weekend, that some shipments are now starting to leave. But, but fundamentally, there is still a human side of this that is very serious and ongoing. So kind of very much with that in our minds. But it obviously has wider implications that has kind of a direct impact on the work that we all do day to day. What impact have you guys seen the war having on investments and across the market? Dan, why don't you take that one? Let me just say war is a horrific thing. I don't want to gloss over that at all in any way. It's a really terrible thing and people are losing their lives, losing their livelihoods. And it sometimes frustrates me that people in investments tend to just jump straight to talking about the investing bit as if we live in a world that's sort of somehow completely divorced from the real world, which I don't think is right. So let me stipulate that war is awful and yeah, terrible thing. But let's just think about the investment side of it. I think the bigger picture, when you look back over long-term history of investment markets through periods of conflict and wars, the reality is that over the longer term, investment markets do tend to work their way through periods of war and markets ultimately will look through it, will sort of recover. And it's also true that they're incredibly hard to predict in the short term. So I think all that's probably taken together is that the evidence would say to you, don't try and forecast it, things over the longer term, five, 10 years, global markets I'm talking about here, probably will recover and will work their way through it over that period of time. And I think that is really important for investors to bear in mind because there can be, I think as a long-term investor, if you're in the position of trying to second guess developments on a battlefield, that's a bad place to be from a decision-making point of view. I think that context is really important, bear in mind. And obviously, there's always the case in investing that all else is not equal. There's so much else going on this year, everything's interconnected. I think it's quite difficult from an investment perspective to tease apart the effect that's had compared with other things, with the one big exception, of course, being Russian and Ukrainian assets and investments. So stocks and bonds, and obviously completely different set of factors affecting those two things. But yeah, we've been looking into that for our clients. Most of our clients are globally diversified investors. It's interesting, you probably find that a decent number of our clients would have had no exposure to either of those countries, but a decent number will have had some exposure. It's generally been around probably the order of a percent, maybe, maybe less than a percent in the cases of those that have had it, maybe in an active emerging markets fund, maybe in an emerging market debt fund. And in those cases, there's, I think, quite rightly been a decent amount of focus on those assets because they've been moving around in value a lot, to put, sort of, to put it mildly. So I think that's important to get it in context and then sort of focus down on those particular assets that are impacted and what you can do about them. It is interesting because understandably, when war first broke out or the invasion first happened, many of our clients sort of turned to us and said, what is our exposure? 
And that's a very interesting question because what they probably thought they meant by that was what Dan sort of ended his point on just then. How much do I have exposed specifically to Russian stocks and Russian bonds and similar for Ukraine? That's the sort of first question that's almost quite easy to answer. But the other sort of follow on question of, well, actually, okay, so what's the impact of this invasion on companies that have subsidiaries in those countries? What's the impact on global supply chain? And therefore, the sort of knock on impact from the conflict that's actually being felt across the world and not necessarily in universally in a stock market, but in certain sectors more than others and that sort of thing. So once you start digging under the surface with any issue, to be honest, particularly in this world we live in where everything is so interconnected, you do find a lot more sort of secondary impacts. But as Dan says, everything else is not equal. So unpicking which factor is because of the conflict and which factor is things that already existed. We already had supply chain issues across the globe long before that. So taking this issue and perhaps extending it more broadly, there seems to be a fairly clear trend whereby some of the globalization benefits that we've all enjoyed over the last 40, 50 years are gradually sort of being unpicked. And it seems like the countries are likely to become more protectionist or to have to be more protectionist. People are going to have to find new trading partners. All of those things are going to take time. There'll be a huge amount of disruption. How do you see that playing out in economic growth, asset values, inflation, etc.? And I suppose just to add one more little element there, what do you see as some of the positives as well as the fairly obvious negatives? I have a very quick answer, which is just that I think that question has been on people's lips for a very long time. So yes, we've seen sort of 40, 50 years of globalization. We've probably seen 10 years of people saying, we're going to see more protectionism, things are going to start breaking up in the same way that they've combined over a long time period. And given how long it takes even to be having the conversation, I'm not that convinced that we will actually see that much sort of breaking up. But I don't know, Dan, if you've got a different view on that. I think reflecting back over my career, one of the biggest trends in investing is this globalization of portfolios. When I sort of started my career, it wasn't uncommon for UK asset owners to be pretty UK focused. Now that's completely gone. It's really a global portfolio we're talking in almost all senses. And so you're right, that's absolutely the starting point. Reversing that, it would be a very long process. And obviously, the more recent part of that globalization has been focusing a lot on specifically on China. Can you get exposure to Chinese onshore equities? Do you want to invest in the offshore listed stuff? And so that's been the direction of it all. And I think it was that expression, wasn't it? Friendshoring. Was that from Janet Yellen or someone who said that it's not offshoring, it's not onshoring, but you're just shoring stuff to your friendly countries, basically. And you could end up in a world system where you sort of have a balkanization of different kind of regions. And as an investor, I guess there's two ways you could go. You could say, well, as an investor, I'm neutral to the whole thing. I just want to invest across all of these different places to get my exposure. Or you might say, well, I get these weird risks, these weird kind of extreme tail risks if I'm investing outside my own country's kind of sphere of influence because there might be sanctions or whatever. So as an investor, it's too risky to go outside that. I think we're only at the very start of those conversations, like Mary says. So you're talking about a 20-year trend of more global portfolios, much more complex, fragmented portfolios than what you had in the past. It would take a long time to reverse that. But you are seeing a little bit, I would say, there is a little bit more appetite, I would say, to revisit some of these questions on investing in autocracies and autocratic regimes, I think. From a risk perspective, actually, but also from a social ESG type stance as well, I've been quite surprised how different some of those conversations have been this year compared to where they would have been even probably five years ago in terms of what asset owners are thinking there. You've brought us on really nicely, Dan. 
it's like you've hosted a podcast before <laughs> and you know how to weave the, co- help <laughs> weave the conversation. It was a segue. <laughs> um, yeah, to our third topic that we wanted to cover, which is climate change, but also more broadly ESG, so social and governance issues as well. I guess maybe as we briefly touched upon maybe the SI a little bit more, maybe let's start there and then we can come back to the kind of climate change side of stuff. I think it can be very often forgot about. I think at the moment so much progress has been made, kind of especially across the insurance market, but more kind of globally and generally in our daily lives, we're talking a lot more about the climate and climate change. But I think the next big wave of change that is potentially coming and conversations that will be happening, I think will be around social issues. What's happening in investment market around that? Are you seeing any kind of change? Are you starting to have more conversations about it? What's kind of happening in that space? Do you want me to kick off on you that? Go, Dan. Yeah. To talk to that first. We definitely are. You're definitely seeing a lot more on focus on that, I would say. It's quite diffuse, I think. It's not necessarily focus. I guess the social lacks that sort of overarching data framework that climate would have, for example, around emissions. It just lacks that kind of unifying theme and it also affects different sectors quite differently. I think investors struggle a bit with that. It feels harder to grapple with. But my personal view on this is there's a tendency to say, oh, we need more data, we need more data. And I always think that it's not about data per se, it's about frameworks for making decent decisions in the absence of good data, which I think is what investing is. In general, data and investing is not perfect. We make decisions. So I think that's where it's sort of got to get to. And I think it's come quite far, but I think the last bit that you need to really make it real is you need some of these kind of broad overarching initiatives that asset owners can support and can instruct their managers to support because the dynamic between asset owners and asset managers is really important. I think a lot of things misunderstand that dynamic and assume that you've got these huge asset owners who are kind of doing all their investing directly, have these direct segregated accounts, huge teams looking at it, just not what happens. Even quite big asset owners are outsourcing it to managers who do have big teams, but managers have got lots of clients, don't quite know what the clients want. So the way to cut through that, I think, is where you have these initiatives like, for example, Net Zero, for example, or Climate Action 100 Plus, where the asset owner can say, look, we believe in this, we want you, the manager, to do it. The manager says, fine, that's what I'll do. And I think that is what you'll start to see. Starting to see some of them in the, around social issues, but I think that is what you'll start to see because it simply doesn't work for asset owners to try and take a stance and ask their manager to execute that across a whole range of stuff. And I think anecdotally, I was involved in researching emerging market equity portfolios for about 10 years at LCP. And when I was first interviewing managers over a decade ago, and you asked about ESG management, which wasn't always a question that was asked because 10 plus years ago, it was nowhere near as big a thing in the industry. You would always get a governance example and governance standards across emerging markets are very varied. So it's a relevant thing to think about. If I roll back maybe five years, they started to realize they really should also be talking about environmental issues. That was sort of picking up momentum across the industry. And even a couple of years ago, when I was still involved in doing research, it was very, very rare to get a social example. But when you think about some of the social factors like modern slavery, those sorts of issues, that is a problem that is faced by companies that operate across the globe. They might outsource production to countries, mainly with emerging markets where these issues are more prevalent, but it's not just an emerging market issue, but it is more focused in emerging markets. And yet still, it was the rarest example that you were given. So I think part of it is evolution of thought process. Part of it is when you go and speak to a manager, they're 
talking to you about things that they think you want to hear because that's the thing that's being talked about in the industry the most so they may actually be doing some really good stuff and not talking to you about it and some of these frameworks as Dan mentioned just helps to bring it to the fore and show that it is something that should be being talked about and the minute it starts to be talked about you can bet that it's being done slightly better because it's front of mind. So if we think about climate change or the E within ESG how are you guys approaching kind of helping your clients achieve net zero through their investment side of it i know it's something Charles, we've been having lots of conversations with the insurers on the liability side of the balance sheet but what are you guys kind of doing on the asset side of the balance sheet to help firms achieve their kind of net zero targets mary and i've worked a couple of projects on this together and partly it comes down to these sort of industry initiatives that really help you do it as i keep saying to clients other people have done the hard work, so you don't have to at this point. There are frameworks you can pick up. There are industry initiatives you can latch onto really well. I'm on a working group, for example, with the Institutional Investors Group on Climate Change, the IOGCC, who published, I think, probably one of the better frameworks for how to do a net zero portfolio. It's one we recommend clients use. And there's an incredible amount of thinking that's gone into that, lots of managers collaborating. And I think it's a really good forum for, for trying to sort of ascertain market practice and move things forward. So that is really our first message, I think, to investors. There's stuff out there. You don't have to figure all this out for yourself. And then the approach is just takes an asset class by asset class view, trying to drill down, trying to think in terms of which companies are aligned with net zero and which companies aren't. And then out of the companies that aren't, which are the really big emitters that are causing big problems from your top-down perspective as an asset owner? How can you drill down to say, well, okay, it looks like this mandate, this manager, these companies within that mandate are responsible for a lot of emissions and they're not aligned. So what is the plan to try and get them to align? And one thing we've found is corporate bonds actually is a really interesting asset class because corporate bond portfolios tend to have quite a lot of utility debt in them because utilities, classic asset heavy businesses, managers love lending against assets. And we're often talking about global portfolios now, of course, like I said. So for example, you could easily get the debt of utility companies in, say, Japan or Korea or the US who are still financing new coal-fired power stations, for example. And you'd be quite surprised in a global bond portfolio what percentage is coal-fired power. It's not trivial by any means. So it's actually corporate bonds, which is an increasingly interesting place to look at, I think. And also, if you think about the way the financing works there, you are providing, by participating in bond issuance, that is primary market capital that's going in. Of course, the criticism with equities is that you're just shuffling them from one owner to another and not changing the capital to the company. Whereas with bonds, especially shorter dated bonds, there's refinancing happen all the time. And that's capital that is or isn't going into the company. And obviously, you can't vote as a bondholder. But as I always say, you vote with the dollars, if you like, whether or not you participate in that issue. So yeah, I think some quite good progress early on, but it tends to be very pragmatic. It's very much 80-20 type rule type stuff. You can get to 80% of the problem pretty quickly, start identifying what's what. Whereas you can sort of worry forever about the data in the last 5% of your portfolio it just doesn't tend to matter. It's kind of just really trying to get to grips with what, who are the big emitters and who's just not aligned with net zero. We had a climate change roundtable for insurers a couple of weeks ago. And one of the kind of key things that was brought out from that, both in terms of the kind of liability so it's insuring companies and on the asset side was this concept of greenwashing and you can do lots of really good stuff and people can say they're doing really good stuff but how good is it actually and that was a worrying concern for lots of people around the table there how do you see that greenwashing element playing out 
I think there's no doubt that there will be greenwashing in the industry. It's a bit to my point earlier, when you speak to an investment manager and they sort of know or they think they know what you want to hear. So they say that stuff more than other stuff. So that's either that they're embellishing things that they do already do. I don't think anyone is going to come out and just blatantly lie about things, but there are ways that you can describe what you're doing that makes it sound like you're doing a bit more thoroughly, etc. I think the way that we try and get around that is to focus on really tangible information and tangible examples. So for example, if you're interviewing an investment manager, asking for specific examples about companies they actually engaged with and what the outcome was, how those conversations went, that's slightly more difficult for them to embellish than just a what's your approach and what's your thought process. But also, so we do a biennial survey of investment managers. It's responsible investment focus, so it's not just the E, it's not just climate change. But what we do in that to avoid greenwashing is to try and get actual data. So how many people in your business have got a specific ESG or responsible investment job title? So some of it is how many people you have allocated. Some of it is what policies do you have in place? And that's cold, hard policies that are written down black and white, which I think as soon as you tell someone to put pen to paper and publish it as a formal policy, we know this from sort of internally at LCP, people think much more carefully about it than just uh, people should do this generally sort of just. So those are some of the ways that we try and get past greenwashing. But I think generally from an investment decision maker perspective, there's those sorts of examples and there's just education. So if you understand a bit more about the question that you're asking, you're going to be much better at looking through some of the potential greenwashing and sort of seeing what's actually going on under the surface. I think that's right. There is a lot of greenwashing, sadly. The worst thing about it is it kind of corrodes trust, I think, from asset owners and investors. But when they see greenwashing, they just don't know sort of don't know what to trust. I personally do think that everyone in the industry, asset managers, consultants, everyone needs to step up and take more responsibility for what's coming out of their organization. We're trying to be really careful with all the stuff we put out whenever we put out statements and stuff to really look at it with a really tough lens to say, could this be interpreted as greenwashing? I think everyone should do that. I would go as far as to say, maybe we're all guilty of it a little bit in things we say. Do we overpromise a little bit sometimes on things? Maybe we all do. I would love to see everyone just really stop and think and say, could this be thought of greenwashing? Or am I overpromising on impact? Am I overpromising on return? Am I offering a win-win that's not really sort of kind of avoiding the key trade-offs? Personal responsibility is a big kind of theme of mine, I guess. Maybe put too much emphasis on it, but that's kind of where I would love to see that one get tackled. And what do you think about the litigation risks associated with greenwashing? How seriously are those being taken? And are there industries that you think are particularly at risk of future litigation in relation to either greenwashing or just to other climate-related lawsuits? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, as I sort of said there, I'm a big fan of personal responsibility rather than litigation and regulation solving it. I don't see greenwashing being regulated away. I really don't. Just because I think it's too hard. I don't have anything against regulation trying to solve it, but I just don't think it is the solution that people seem to think it is. But there's already litigation happening. I mean, you had in Germany, didn't you? You had police storming offices of some asset manager trying to get documents for greenwashing. So that is definitely happening. I just think regulation operates on too long a lead time and is too difficult to sort of make it work properly. And you're more likely to have results by people taking their responsibility for their organization and, and kind of what they're saying. I suppose one might not reach litigation, but reputational risk, one factor that maybe will be changing in the next few years that could impact reputational risks is the requirements on TCFD reporting. So that's Task Force for Climate Related Financial Disclosures. So large pension schemes in the UK, but also many companies in the UK either do already or will need to very soon start 
preparing these reports on what they're doing to understand, mitigate, tackle climate related risks and opportunities. And that document gets published publicly. And we know that there are lots of the regulator is very interested in those reports, but activists are also very interested in those reports. And no doubt someone will be collecting them all up, seeing what people promise they're doing and then trying to work out whether they're actually doing it. So the more data there is publicly, the more likely someone is collecting it. And in some cases, maybe they're sort of trying to trip people up. And in other cases, they're just trying to hold people to their word and holding people to their word. I can't really see anything wrong with that. Well, thank you, Dan and Mary. That's been fascinating. I feel like we could easily have used double the time and I've got a long list of things that I'm just itching to ask you, but I think we're out of time now. So shall we finish with a couple of fun questions, Jess? Just before we wrap up on that, I guess a chance to kind of hear what some of the really good episodes that you've had on Investment Uncut recently. So people have listened to this and thought, oh, really interested to hear more about investments and learn more. What kind of episodes should they maybe go and look out for? I'll let Dan give maybe some highlight actual episodes, but the one to get our highlights is actually the, is it the last one of the season, Dan, where we did a kind of wrap? So we did a wrap of season two where we talked about some of the biggest things we've learned, some of the, not necessarily contradictions, but interesting points that came out in perhaps different directions through the season and also our favourite episodes. So that's a good place to start. But Dan, do you have any particular highlights? I always enjoy that process where you go back and you laugh at the stupid stuff you said like a year ago. It's <laughs> just how irrelevant and silly it all was. So I always think that's quite important. But we did an emergency podcast, didn't we, on what pension schemes are doing in higher interest rates. That seems to be really popular. We've done a couple of great ones with some academics, particularly in the US, authors in the US. So Michael Mobison, we talked to, I really enjoyed that. That was about security valuation. But we've also had this kind of theme running, haven't we? We've talked more about this side of communication and storytelling and media, which I think is a really underappreciated area of investing. And I think our most popular episode was with Stacey Havener. She works with asset managers in the US, helping them tell better stories about what they're about, what their purpose is, what they're coming from. And it wasn't just that we had a few episodes on that sort of theme as well. So if you're interested, do take a look. We talk about real investing stuff, some of it sort of hardcore asset class, up, down, kind of inflation interest rates, what they're going to do stuff some of the time. And then we're trying to take a step back and talk about some of the bigger picture communication media type issues as well. Great. As we mentioned, we have two fun questions that we like to end on. So what would be your dream job outside of financial services? I've got one. Well, I would say interior designer at the moment because I'm decorating a house, but I've flitted in my childhood through various design related jobs that I wanted to have. So at one point, interior designer, one point, fashion designer, one point, costume designer. But yeah, right now, firmly in the interiors. So obsessively watching lots of interior design programs, continuously contacting my boyfriend and saying, how about this other idea for this room that we've already painted? (laughs) And I think his patience is wearing a little bit thin. So it'll have to remain in my head for the time being. You're welcome to send them to you, Mary, and I'll just (laughs) humor you. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) I think I've set aside my dream of being a professional sportsman. That went out the window years ago. But on this, I think, I'm coming around to thinking journalist. I've loved Ooh. talking to some of the journalists and the authors we've spoken to. I love a bit of investigative journalism. And I've also just finished reading The Palace Papers by Tina Brown. Amazing book, loved it, couldn't get enough of it. And obviously she's at the very top end. She was editor of Vanity Fair and stuff for decades, but just the sheer glamour of the role that she did and the people she met, I just can't really get past it. So I wouldn't mind being editor of one of those kind of magazines or newspapers or something. Fantastic. And our second question is, if, or should I say, when you invite us round for dinner, what would you cook for us? I'm not really a cook. 
you want to hear what I say first. <laughs> I'm worried I might stay the same thing and I feel you kind oh. of own it a bit more. Oh, now I'm wondering what good thing I should be saying. I'm not really a cook, so what would I make? Do I have to do the cooking? Yeah, yeah, just to make it tough. I'd probably do salmon, I think. Mm-hmm. Baked salmon in the oven, some kind of potatoes and fried up veg. <laughs> it doesn't sound very nice, does it? <laughs> I'm not sure you want to come round. <laughs> <laughs> what I thought you were going to say was what I'm going to say, which was a barbecue, if I could make it socially acceptable to, like, if it was summertime or whatever. Because obviously you're famous for barbecuing your Christmas dinner. We are, but that wasn't Mary. me, you see. This oh, is the problem. I, see. I don't know ah, how to light the barbecue. <laughs> so we wouldn't ah. get very far. <laughs> that slipped the memory. I had you there as the barbecue queen. I would definitely do a barbecue. I do like a bit of veg on the barbecue, actually. So I think that's often underappreciated. So I would do a bit of courgettes, peppers, bit of aubergines, sweet corn. Obviously, you do your burgers and sausages as well, but you get your veg on there nice and early. Make sure that's really nicely done. So there we go. I Fantastic. think I want to come round to Dan's, so shall <laughs> yeah. my invite yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> removed. <laughs> Let's all go to Dan's. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you so much to both of you. It's been an absolutely fantastic conversation. And thank you for coming along. It's been a blast. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks so much. It's been great. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. That's all we have time for this week on Insurance Uncut. Please join us in two weeks' time for another episode. This podcast is brought to you by LCP. We'd like to thank Nikki Freegard, Deepika Misra, Megan Frost, and Matthew Passy for helping to produce this episode. podcast is for information purposes only and should not be taken as advice. All views expressed by podcast hosts and guests are purely their own opinions and do not represent those of LCP, its clients or affiliates. LCP makes no warranty, guarantee or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast.